Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for October 28, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Returning to Forthright Radio is journalist and award-winning author Adam Hochschild to discuss his latest book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, published by Mariner Books. While a college student in the early 1960s, Adam Hochschild worked on an anti-government newspaper in South Africa, as well as a civil rights worker in Mississippi. He was a writer and editor for Ramparts Magazine and a co-founder of Mother Jones, and he's been a lecturer in the UC Berkeley School of Journalism for many years. In our earlier interviews, he discussed his books, Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire's Slaves, and King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. We spoke with Adam Hochschild via telephone from his home in the Bay Area on October 25th, 2022. Adam, your latest book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, focuses on the period between when the United States entered World War One, particularly the repression of anti-war segments of our society, labor, immigrants, and descendants of former slaves, and into the early 1920s. So much of this history resonates with our current situation. In recent years, there have been numerous incidents in our country, particularly a resurgence of overt racial violence, that have elicited a horrified response of, quote, this is not who we are, end of quote, when in fact it is self-evident that although it may be that we wish we weren't, it certainly is who at least some of us are. We'll get into this, but let's begin our discussion with the title of your book, American Midnight. What do you mean by American Midnight? Here's what I meant, Joy. I think all countries, and ours is no exception, do have a tendency to whitewash our past, to look at the glorious parts of our history, or at least to interpret our history in sort of glorious ways where things are forever getting better, and to skip over some of the nasty parts. And when I think back to my high school history textbook, and I suspect this is true for most of us who took American history in high school. There was a chapter on the First World War where those brave doughboys in their forest ranger hats went off to Europe, fought bravely, helped win the war, came home to ticker tape parades. And then that chapter ends. And then you turn the page. And the next chapter is the Roaring Twenties, Prohibition, Speakeasies, Al Capone, Babe Ruth. But there was a period in between that was really very nasty and where we saw a lot of the same things that we saw very nakedly revealed during Trump's presidency. Rage against immigrants and refugees, unvarnished racism, and a number of things that Trump would have liked to do but wasn't able to. For example, when he ran for president in 2016, his followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up, about Hillary Clinton. Well, Woodrow Wilson did lock up one of his rivals for the presidency, 
Eugene Debs, leader of the Socialist Party, was behind bars in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta in 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president. And the Wilson administration locked up hundreds and hundreds of other Americans as well solely for things that they wrote or said. And also during this period, 1917 to 21, really, there was vigilante violence on quite a large scale, some of it encouraged by the Justice Department. There was the worst racial violence in American history since the immediate aftermath of slavery. There was tremendous repression against labor unions. It was a very nasty time, and that's where the title American Midnight comes from. Although the U.S. military had, since 1898, been very active in brutal anti-democracy invasions and occupations in the Caribbean, Latin America, the Philippines, and China, the general sense of American popular opinion was isolationist with regard to the European conflict that we call World War One. But Woodrow Wilson decided, after running for his second term on an anti-war platform, that even Eugene V. Dubs, the perennial Socialist Party candidate to whom you just referred, uncharacteristically not to run against him. But then he called on Congress to declare war on Germany and its allies. His campaign slogan had been, he kept us out of war. Adam, set the political scene for us as your book is opening. What made that change? Again, let's go back to the sort of myth propagated by the high school textbook, which was that the nations of the old world were tearing each other to peace in Europe and this terrible war that began in 1914, millions and millions of young men being killed and horribly wounded, whereas the United States was a peaceful country peacefully thriving away here on our side of the Atlantic until those nasty German submarines started sinking American ships in early 1917. And Woodrow Wilson said, enough is enough. We need to make the world safe for democracy and brought the U.S. into the war on the side of the Allies. There are a lot of problems with that myth. For one thing, even though the United States was not formally part of the First World War that began on such a huge scale in Europe in 1914, we in effect were because we were selling massive amounts of artillery shells, rifle bullets, machine guns, warships to Britain and France in huge quantities. 40% of the British military budget was being spent in the United States. Now, theoretically, the United States was neutral in this war, and American business was equally free to sell its products to Germany, but that was impossible because Germany was under a very tight naval blockade. So the U.S. was in this war from the beginning, and one of the reasons that Wilson joined was that the war had reached a sort of stalemate, and Americans who had bought British and French war bonds were starting to be afraid that they would never get their money back unless the U.S. helped those nations win the war. So it was really at that point that the United States disregarded German warnings that American ships carrying arms would be sunk, sent those ships anyway, and used the submarine attacks as an excuse to bring the U.S. into the war. The other part of the myth that's untrue is that the U.S. in those pre-war years was not a peaceful country. We were a tinderbox of tensions. One was between nativists and immigrants, where there was very fierce 
feeling against new immigrants arriving from Europe. Another was between blacks and whites. Millions of white people in the South really never resigned themselves to the fact that the South had lost the Civil War. They wanted to keep black Americans in miserable, low-paid jobs like picking cotton as sharecroppers. Black people who wanted to escape that regime in the South started fleeing to the North in the Great Migration. A lot of white Northerners didn't want them there. There was racial violence on a large scale in Northern cities. Finally, the U.S. was a tinderbox of tension between business and labor, where dozens of workers were killed in strikes each year, more than 70 alone just in 1913-14 in a strike at a Rockefeller-owned mine in Colorado. And all of these tensions were inflamed by the United States entering the war because then the worker on strike could be accused of impeding the war effort. Then the immigrant speaking a foreign language on street corner might be a German spy. And all these tensions ratcheted up, became more and more violent. And then the other thing that added tinder to the flame was the Russian Revolution, when in November 1917, the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia, and the American establishment was terrified that the revolution would spread to the United States. Then that person speaking the foreign language on a street corner might be either a German spy or a Russian spy. So that provided a further excuse for ratcheting up the repression. I'm speaking to you from Bozeman, Montana, and we are very proud of the first woman to be elected to the United States House of Representatives, Jeanette Rankin. Wilson comes before the Congress and gives a rousing speech, which you describe as very well received by most of the people present. She was one of the few who voted against to declare war, and Robert La Follette also was determined not to permit the war effort. Speak a bit about La Follette. But let me first just say you Montanans should be proud of Jeanette Rankin because she was brave enough to be among the small minority of members of the House of Representatives who voted against the United States entering World War I. I think she was right about that. And she lived long enough to speak out against the Vietnam War as well. In the U.S. Senate, only six senators voted against America going to war. One of them was Robert La Follette of Wisconsin, who was the strongest progressive voice in the Senate. And he said, for example, if this is a war to make the world safe for democracy, why aren't we demanding self-determination for Egypt, for India, for Ireland? All of these places, of course, were colonies of our new ally, Great Britain. And for this, he was hanged in effigy at his alma mater, the University of Wisconsin. He started receiving nooses in the mail, and his fellow senators opened an investigation as to whether he should be expelled from the U.S. Senate. A very brave man. While we're on the topic of women lone votes in the House, let's acknowledge Bay Area Representative Barbara Lee lone vote against the invasion of Iraq. I think both women have history on their side. I'm proud to be a constituent of Barbara Lee's. The United States entered very late in the war, and in many ways we were not at all prepared to do so. Talk about some of the problems that arose in the Selective Service Act. That's when that happened, and the diversity of the people who responded and were drafted and some of the problems there. 
The U.S. had not had a draft since the Civil War. Both the Union and Confederate sides in the Civil War instituted a draft, and both of them were met with considerable resistance and bloodshed, actually, in the Union side suppressing riots against the draft. So the administration was pretty reluctant to institute a draft, but they knew that in this war, where there were already literally tens of millions of people engaged on each side in Europe, in Africa, in Asia a little bit, that they had to institute a draft. So they did. There was considerable resistance to it, because even though I think it's fair to say most Americans were pretty enthusiastic about entering the war, there were a lot who were not. Many, although not all of them, were on the political left, supporters of the Socialist Party, for example, and similar groups had long felt that the workers of the world should be fighting only the capitalists and not each other. But there were other Americans also, I think, who sensed that this terrible war was going to remake the world for the worse in every conceivable way, and that the U.S. shouldn't be a part of it. And I think they were right, because the war left a devastated Europe. It left a reservoir of bitterness and resentment in Germany that Hitler was able to whip up into the Nazi movement and start another world war. It's impossible to imagine the Second World War without the first. The war ignited the revolution in Russia and did many other nasty things as well. And a lot of people sensed at the time that when you have bitter fighting on this huge scale, it's not going to leave a peaceful world behind it. So there was resistance. There were people who refused to be drafted, and they were then taken into the army anyway. And when they were in the army, many of them continued to refuse to do the mandatory training. They were thrown in prison, treated horribly. Several dozen draft refusers died in prison during the war from mistreatment. And of course, they were also prisons were one of these places where the influenza epidemic that started in 1918 spread with particular rapidity when you have large numbers of people close together, treated very, very brutally in prison. And then a lot of people simply tried to evade the draft by not registering or by not showing up when they were called. This, in turn, produced a vigilante movement, something called the American Protective League, which was a private vigilante group, eventually had a quarter of a million members nationwide, that was officially chartered by the Department of Justice. And members of this group who tended to be somewhat older men who were too old to be drafted but still wanted to feel they were somehow patriotically fighting for their country, they got to wear it like a police officer's shield, a little silver badge that had their rank on it, that said auxiliary to the U.S. Department of Justice on it. And they staged raids in cities all over the country, rounding up young men by the thousands who couldn't produce a draft card. And some of these guys hadn't registered. Some of them had left their draft cards at home. They were often roughed up, often held for several days until somebody in the family could find them and show the draft card. Again, it was a kind of nasty vigilante violence. Members of this group also broke up anti-war rallies, and you can find descriptions of their pleasure in beating up anti-war speakers 
when the war ended, this particular group was dissolved by the Justice Department, but its 250,000 members had had so much fun playing at this vigilante role that many of them stayed active, merely changing their names in different cities, adopting other names, and continuing vigilante violence, mainly directed against strikes. And again, you can find sort of jubilant descriptions, and I've quoted some in the book, where they describe with great zest beating up strikers. We're speaking with Adam Hochschild. His latest book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. I found the level of cruelty in many different sectors of society very shocking, very shocking, whether it was the prison guards with the conscientious objectors or the American Protective League going into, let's say, New York City and stopping people at all points of culture and transportation, subways, theaters, whatever. I mean, 250,000 people stopped in New York City, for example. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Here are some of the quotes I mentioned. For example, here is a member of the American Protective League who is zestfully describing beating up people at an anti-war rally in Grant Park, Chicago, in the summer of 1917. And here's what he wrote. Three of us worked our way to the speaker's stand. When one particularly vicious orator began to incite the mob, I jumped on the platform and grabbed him. A few seconds later, I landed on the heads of the people in front. My two companions rushed to me, and shoulder to shoulder, we battled for our lives. Wagons full of police with riot clubs arrived, and we managed to arrest the leaders. Of breaking up another rally, he declared, The anarchist men were tough to handle, but the women fought like wildcats, scratching, biting, and kicking with feline ferocity. Just so zestfully describing this combat and this is on the, this is you know not combat in Europe it's combat on the streets of an american city now i mentioned that this particular vigilante group changed its names in various cities and remained active after the war here is an account by someone else describing what he called a posse that helped to put down a steel strike in gary indiana in 1919 every one of us had a deputy's star in his pocket a heavy gun under his left shoulder, and a blackjack in his right hand. A bunch of these foreign strikers met us this side of the tracks, and we went into them. Our method of work was to grab a man's right arm with the operator's own left hand, then bring down the blackjack across the hand bones or wrist of the man thus caught. We have a nice hospital here in Gary. There were 35 people in there the next day with broken wrists and hands. Adam, does this bring up for you, as it does for me, resonance with who is a real American and the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers versus the anti-fascists? How far off am I in, in finding parallels there? I don't think you're far off at all. I think there is a strain of vigilante violence that has run through American history from the 
slave-catching militias that ran after slaves trying to flee plantations in the pre-Civil War South, to the vigilante violence that took place on the frontier, to the vigilante violence in this period I'm writing about in American Midnight, 1917 to 21, to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers in the attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6th of last year. There's a continuity between all this. We should discuss the Espionage Act because that is what allowed a lot of both government and, for lack of a better word, private activity to happen. That uh, we who are more used to a more liberal interpretation of civil rights in the First Amendment would find shocking. Tell us about the Espionage Act, please, Adam Huckshield. Well, this is a law, an amended version of which is still in effect. And ironically, if the government uh, succeeds in bringing charges against Donald Trump over those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, it will be under the Espionage Act. It was started, however, for a very different purpose. The act was passed by Congress about two months after the U.S. entered the First World War at the behest of the Wilson administration. And it basically had very little to do with espionage. There were only a handful of actual German spies who were ever prosecuted under it. Essentially, it criminalized dissent against the war. The government knew that the U.S. entering the First World War was something that was very unpopular on the part of a sizable segment of the population, and they wanted to criminalize speaking out against the war. It was under that act that the federal government sent to prison for a year or more, more than 400 Americans solely for things that they wrote or said. States around the country passed copycat versions of the Espionage Act, and another five or 600 people were prosecuted by states and ended up spending a year or more in prison. A far larger number of people at both the state and federal level spent shorter periods of time in prison, again, solely for things that they wrote or said. Another thing that the Espionage Act allowed the government to do was to censor the press. It gave to the postmaster general the power to declare a newspaper or magazine unmailable. It could not travel through the U.S. mail. Now, for mainstream daily newspapers, which were sold on street corners or delivered to people's houses, this was not a problem. But for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, the great bulk of the country's foreign language press, they depended on the mail. It was the only way to reach people. This was before the Internet, before radio and TV. And it was crippling. And the postmaster general who enforced this was a terrible guy, Albert Burleson, a former congressman from Texas, very right-wing, very reactionary. At the time that he was born, his family owned some 20 slaves. He was an arch-segregationist. He felt that black newspapers, by definition, fell under suspicion. And he censored, forbade access to the mails to some 400 individual issues of American newspapers and magazines during the second Wilson administration. And he forced about 75 of them to close down because if a newspaper or magazine had no other way to reach its subscribers, it was in effect frozen. So this was press censorship on a large scale that 
Donald Trump could only have dreamed of with all his assaults on the media. They were verbal assaults. He didn't have this kind of power. Ironically, Burleson, the postmaster general who did run this operation, ran it all out of the massive stone building in Washington that was then post office headquarters and that 100 years later became the Trump International Hotel. Yes, there are numerous ironies, and that is certainly one of them. Talk about how this Espionage Act was utilized. For one thing, I had no idea the role of detectives in American life and the numbers of detectives. Speak a bit about that, please. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, this was an era of tremendous labor violence. There were virtually none of the laws that make it possible to organize a labor union that exists today. And as a result, workers trying to organize met fierce resistance from employers. Sometimes there would be hired strike breakers who tried to substitute for them when they went on strike. Sometimes employers would hire private detectives as guards to beat up workers who were striking. They would always infiltrate private detectives into any attempt to organize a union so they could report back to employers about what was going on. It's estimated that the country's three major detective agencies in this era employed 135,000 people, the smaller ones still more. And the interesting thing that happened in this regard, once this period of repression kicked off by the war began, was that the government began employing undercover operatives on a large scale. And I talk about this some in the book. And one of my characters, I like to tell a story of a piece of history through assembling a cast of characters who sort of represent different parts of it. One of my characters is a private detective. His name was Leo Wendell. He was working, though, for the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, essentially the FBI. It added federal to its name some years later. And they sent him to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to infiltrate the Wobblies, the, as they were known, the industrial workers of the world, the country's most militant labor union. Wendell was so good at his job that he got elected secretary of the local Wobbly branch, found himself leading demonstrations, giving speeches at rallies. He joined the strike committee for a steel strike. He was active in the Socialist Party. He was active in the city's radical library. And the whole time, he was writing three or four reports a week to the Justice Department, which today we can read, thanks to the National Archives, a government agency that once again is back in the news again because of Trump. So this was a huge feature of American life. Another government agency that infiltrated civilian groups all over the country was military intelligence, which employed a thousand people here in the United States, not doing anything concerned with the Germans whom we were fighting in Europe, but infiltrating civilian groups of all kinds here in the U.S., labor unions, black organizations, people organizing against the war, and we can see also the records that they kept during this period. This is another one of the characters you follow throughout your book, Adam Hochschild, American Midnight, Ralph Vandeman. Is that how you say his name? 
Van Diemen, I think. Oh, that makes even more sense. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Ralph Van Diemen. How did they justify using military intelligence in the United States against United States citizens? A lot of it was Van Diemen's work. He was a fascinating guy. He got his start, as did many people who were significant figures in this era. He got his start in the Philippine War, the very, very brutal war, roughly from 1899 to 1902, although many skirmishes continued after that time, where the U.S. brutally suppressed the independence movement in the Philippines. And Van Diemen there, he was an army officer, at the time a captain, and he was put in charge of something called the Bureau of Insurgent Records, where he used the leading information management tool of the day, file cards, to keep files on Filipino insurgents who were working against U.S. rule. He discovered he had a great passion for this kind of work. And when the First World War began, he went to the Secretary of War and said, we need a military intelligence operation here spying on subversive Americans. And within a year, he had a thousand people working for him, military and civilian. They had offices all over the country. They infiltrated groups. They attended anti-war rallies and this kind of thing. They spied on all sorts of groups. And the records of their work that they left are just fascinating and appalling. The military of this era was very right-wing. They thought very much in ethnic terms. One of the most fascinating artifacts of this era is a map of New York City drawn up by the head of military intelligence there in early 1919 that is in color, and it's color-coded on the map according to where dangerous ethnicities in the city live. Parts of the map are colored red. These are for Russian Jews living in these neighborhoods because they might be communists or socialists. Other colors represented Italian Americans who might be anarchists, Irish Americans who might be Irish Republican Army supporters, or black Americans who were sort of considered an all-round danger. The U.S. really went mad with this kind of surveillance culture at this time. You were just referring to Captain John B. Trevor's efforts in New York City. In this map, those are eight battle zones of, like, ethnic neighborhoods. Is it too much to say that they were at war with Americans? Uh, no, it's not too much to say that, because this was one of the conflicts that was splitting this country apart at this time. In the United States, we've always had a perpetually simmering war between people whose ancestors got here two or three or more generations ago and people whose ancestors came more recently because the recent arrivals tend to come from different places. And today, of course, the conflict is between many white Americans whose ancestors got here 100, 200 years ago or whatever, and new immigrants coming here or trying to come here from Latin America. A hundred years ago, there was almost no immigration from Latin America, but there was a lot of immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, basically Italians, Poles, and Jews. This was met with great hostility by the descendants of 
people who had immigrated from England, Scotland, Germany, Holland, uh, 100, 200 years earlier. And Captain Trevor of military intelligence, uh, whom you just mentioned, who drew up this strange map of New York City, went on to become really one of the leading anti-immigrant activists of the 20th century and was one of two key people in crafting the Immigration Bill of 1924, which was the bill that essentially slammed the door in this country on immigrants for the next 41 years, letting in only a small number of people each year. This was the law that basically kept out refugees from the Holocaust. So that had its origin in this period. Yes, you're referring to the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924, which you note in your book made a big impression on Adolf Hitler. He thought it was a well-constructed act from his jail cell at that time. That's right. You mentioned the recent immigrants to the United States, and I can't help noticing that a large preponderance of these immigrants or refugees are coming from nations that the United States invaded and occupied during the imperialist phase from 1898 to, let's say, 1940 or so. Cuba, of course, had the refugees that we accepted because they were anti-communist refugees. But recently, Haiti and Nicaragua and um, even Venezuela, although we didn't occupy Venezuela, but I think you get what I mean. We set up anti-democracy governments in these countries and kept their ability to create and evolve in their own ways that would utilize their resources for themselves and prevented that from happening. And of course, with climate change being what it is and what it is becoming, we can anticipate that this is simply going to continue and accelerate. It certainly is. And I think you're quite right that the U.S. is responsible for some of the turmoil, the corruption, the violence that afflicts so much of Central America and the Caribbean today, and that's behind a lot of the immigration. I don't think we can blame the United States for everything that has gone wrong in Latin America, because certainly there are many other things that have contributed to it slavery under the Spanish, Spanish and Portuguese colonialism, and so forth. But we certainly didn't help matters by our support of a string of military coups and authoritarian right-wing governments that have made it very difficult for democracy to flourish in many of these countries. And then climate change on top of that is pushing people out of the equatorial parts of the world, not just in this hemisphere, but in the other hemisphere as well. And there are already similar vast pressures on Europe from people who are desperate to get there from parts of the world that are becoming unlivable because of what's happening to our climate. Following your method of focusing on individuals, there is also... Emma Goldman. Now, I warrant that most of our listeners have probably heard of Emma Goldman, but they may not know the salient points that you bring up in your book. What would you like our listeners to know about Emma Goldman in the context that we're discussing? Well, she was a feisty, brave, outspoken woman who was somebody who was a really quite a remarkable figure who spoke out for what she believed in a 
very forceful way and who spoke not just about social justice, but about new developments in art and literature. And the moment the U.S. entered the war, she started organizing against the draft. And she was swiftly put on trial, one of the first cases brought under the Espionage Act. In fact, if I'm remembering correctly, she was arrested the very day that the Espionage Act passed. And she was swiftly sentenced to two years in prison and then expelled from the country when she got out of prison. Let me just read you something that she said at her trial, because it's a very moving quotation, I think, that tells you what sort of person she was. Remember, she's on trial before a jury, 12 men. There were no women on juries in those days for organizing against the draft, against compulsory military service. And she summed up her case by saying this, and I'll read it to you. Gentlemen of the jury, we respect your patriotism, but may there not be different kinds of patriotism. Our patriotism is that of a, a man who loves a woman with open eyes. He is enchanted by her beauty, yet he sees her faults. So we too, who know America, love her beauty, her richness, her great possibilities. Above all, do we love her great apostles who dream and work for liberty, but with the same passionate emotion, we hate her cant and her corruption. That was a pretty good definition of patriotism then, and I think it still is today. Well, we were speaking about the detectives and agents infiltrating and reporting, and I'm going to read a quote that you have of one of these agents who's following Emma Goldman. He said, she's doing tremendous damage. She is womanly, a remarkable orator, tremendously sincere, and carries conviction. If she is allowed to continue here, she cannot help but have great influence. Yeah, that's right. So the government was very suspicious of people like her, and that's why they went after her. They put her on trial, they sent her to prison for two years, and then they deported her on a ship with 248 other radicals that the government wanted to get rid of. A woman who eventually had the cell next to Emma Goldman is Kate Richards O'Hare. What should our listeners know about her? She was a very fiery, outspoken orator, organizer for the Socialist Party, who had grown up in Kansas on a farm. Family went bankrupt on the farm. She knew what rural poverty was like firsthand. And she drew crowds of thousands whenever she gave speeches in the prairie states. So she was really the Socialist Party's most popular woman orator. She also was sent to prison before speaking out against the war, and she found herself in the very next cell to Emma Goldman in the penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri. The two women became great friends, even though on the outside they might have had political quarrels because they came from different traditions, the socialist tradition and the anarchist tradition. But they became close friends in prison. Kate Richards O'Hare, who knew how to type, typed some of Emma Goldman's letters for her. They joked about Irish cooking versus Jewish cooking. And they each wrote about their recollections of the other. And for a writer, you know, when you have two of the people you're following say what they thought of each other, it's just a writer's dream because that's wonderful material to work from. 
Emma Goldman wrote her memoirs later on. Kate Richards O'Hare wrote a stream of letters to her husband and family, which were smuggled out of the prison by a friendly chaplain. So we know on almost a day-by-day basis what she was doing there, what she was talking about with Emma and so on. Wonderful material to work from. We can't leave out another fiery woman, Dr. Mary Equi. Three cheers for Mary Equi. Tell us about her. <laughs> okay. Marie Equi was a doctor in Portland, Oregon, who was an outspoken radical. She took care of workers who were injured in strikes. She would operate for free on, on the poor when they couldn't afford to pay her. And she was a very outspoken opponent of the war. When the U.S. was preparing to enter the war, there was in Portland, Oregon, where she lived, as there were all over the country, what they call preparedness parade, where Boy Scouts and patriotic groups and so forth went on a march through town urging more military spending. She slipped her car into that parade with a banner on the side saying, thou shalt not kill. And she continued to speak out in this way. She found that every time she started to give a speech, she would get arrested. And then she decided to give a talk from the one place where the police couldn't reach her. She borrowed the crampons of a telephone lineman, climbed to the top of a telephone pole, and orated from there. And the police were not able to arrest her until she had come back down to earth a lovely person. So sort of she's part of this trio of women activists uh, whom I've got in the book, her and Kate Richards O'Hare and Emma Goldman. So again, the Espionage Act is the cover for all of this repression. Eventually, it goes to the Supreme Court in the case of Schenck v. U.S. Tell our listeners about that. Well, one of the depressing things about this era is that the Supreme Court was truly terrible. This case was a case that the government brought under the Espionage Act against several Socialist Party activists who had sent anti-draft leaflets to men that they knew were going to be drafted. And the government charged them under the Espionage Act. Their defense was, this is free speech. You know, we are just writing our opinions that the draft law is wrong and we have the, should have the right to send it to whoever we want. The case came before the Supreme Court and the court sadly unanimously upheld the law. And it was in upholding it, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who had been a justice that the free speech advocates had placed some of their hopes in, made his famous statement in writing the opinion that free speech is free speech, but it doesn't give somebody the right to yell fire in a crowded theater, which is a terrible analogy because speaking out against a war that millions of people believe to be unjustified is not the same thing as falsely yelling a fire alarm in a crowded theater. But the interesting thing is that Holmes then had some second thoughts, and he was large enough to change his mind. Later that year, 1919, another case came before the Supreme Court, also involving some leaflets, leaflets that had been thrown out the window of a factory in New York by a small group of Russian Jewish immigrants who were protesting the U.S. sending troops to support the anti-Bolshevik forces in the Russian Civil War. And this case came before they were prosecuted under the Espionage Act. This case came before the court. 
was this a free speech issue or not? And Holmes told his shocked colleagues that he was planning to write a dissent against upholding the Espionage Act here because he felt that free speech mattered. And his colleagues were so upset at this that three of them, very unusual thing to do, came to see him privately at his home and told him, Justice Holmes, you really should stick with us on this so we can have a united front. Remember, you were a soldier yourself. They were talking to him in Holmes's study where his Civil War sword was hanging on the wall. He had been a soldier in the Civil War, was wounded, I believe. But he said, no, I'm going to stick with my principles. We know about this conversation because Holmes's law clerk was in the next room listening in through a half-open door. And Justice Louis Brandeis joined Holmes in this dissent. And there's an often quoted passage where Holmes talked about how the best protection of liberty is a free trade in the marketplace of ideas. Supreme Court dissents don't make law, of course, but this principle that free speech matters, I think was something that more and more as the 20th century went on, the court began to respect in its decisions. And I hope it will continue to respect them today. Do you see parallels with the dissents in the current Supreme Court that many feel are wrongly deciding issues of personal freedom and privacy? Well, there are different issues I certainly feel that we we do have an appalling majority of people on the Supreme Court right now. I dread the decisions that may be coming down the road if they uphold this business of state legislatures being basically able to decide the election results in each state. It could be a total catastrophe for American democracy. So the decisions are somewhat different. The issues involved are somewhat different, but I'm very, very worried about the Supreme Court we do have. Back to your book, Adam Huckshield. A. Mitchell Palmer eventually becomes the Attorney General. You write that he had been a rather progressive person until his house was bombed at night with his wife and his 10-year-old daughter present, and that really radicalized him. He created a radical division at the Department of Justice that included 30 men in Washington, D.C., 60 in the field, and he appointed a very young J. Edgar Hoover on August 1st, 1919. Please tell us about Palmer and his radical division and the repercussions. Well, Palmer was attorney general, and you're right, he had had a reputation as being something of a progressive, but I think two things changed that. One is that there was a string of anarchist bombings around the country in 1919. One of the targets was Palmer's own house, and of course, that's always upsetting. Somebody's trying to kill you. They didn't succeed, but they did a lot of damage to his home. The other thing was that he had his eye on the Democratic presidential nomination in 1920. And I think he saw in this riled up country of ours that the path to the nomination was to be an outspoken law and order candidate. And as the country's chief law enforcement officer, the attorney general, he had a good claim to that role. 
So he started campaigning for president, and he wanted to be able to say that he was tough in carrying out the law and cracking down on radicals. And so he staged what became known as the Palmer Raids, late 1919, early 1920, where roughly 10,000 people around the country were rounded up often roughed up, and you can actually find footage of this on YouTube because the government wanted newsreel cameras to capture some of this, roughed up as they were arrested, questioned, and several thousand of them were held in jail. These were people that Palmer thought he could deport because they were foreign-born and they hadn't been naturalized as American citizens. Some of them were active radicals of one sort or another. Some of them were not politically active at all, but it would look good for his presidential campaign if he could send shiploads of people off back to Europe where they'd come from. So that was his strategy to win the Democratic nomination for president in 1920. He went a bit too far, started believing his own paranoia, so to speak, and predicted repeatedly that on May Day, 1920, the international workers' holiday, there would be a nationwide communist uprising. And all over the country, they put the National Guard on alert. They called out extra police. J.P. Morgan hired extra security guards. Cops were stationed outside railroad stations, post offices, ferry terminals, and so on. And nothing happened. And that deflated both Palmer's presidential campaign and the Red Scare generally. Then there's another individual, Acting Secretary of Labor, Lewis F. Post, who thwarted many of these deportations. Briefly tell us about that. Post is one of the heroes of American Midnight. He was acting Secretary of Labor sort of by accident because the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The person who normally would have taken his job had just resigned to run for Congress. Post, who was a number three person, became acting Secretary of Labor. A key role because even though Palmer's Justice Department was arresting all these thousands of people whom he was hoping to deport, deportations fell under the Immigration Bureau, which was part of the Labor Department. Post was a progressive journalist in his previous life who believed strongly that nobody should be deported from the United States because of their political opinions. And he foiled Palmer's plans for this. He found problems with the arrest warrants. He invalidated them. He let thousands of people out of prison. He was a very skillful bureaucrat. He was a lawyer, knew the law backwards and forwards, and a rare combination of somebody who was a masterful political maneuverer and a man of great principle. And he really foiled Palmer's plans beautifully. And as I say, is one of the heroes of this story. He should be much better known than he is in American history. Many of the people whom you write about, Adam Huckfield, in your book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, should be better known. And I personally am very grateful to you that you have written this book. It's a pleasure to read. In the study of history, in some ways, our country is in a bit of an educational crisis now with militant forces who seem to be having a certain effect preventing a free flow of information about accurate history of our country. You must have thoughts on this topic, and I I would love it if you would share it with our listeners. 
Well, I think, as I've said at the beginning of our hour here, that, that all countries like to whitewash their history, to talk about the glories and downplay the parts that are not so nice. And I think we're seeing a big explosion of that right now in the United States, where you have states passing laws that you can't teach so-called critical race theory and right-wing groups wanting to ban certain books from libraries. There's always been a certain amount of that, but I think we have a big upsurge of it right now, in part because there are many parts of our history that a lot of people are paying much more attention to than they used to. We've got a huge, wonderful National Museum of African American history in Washington, D.C., something we didn't have for 400 years. We've got books like the New York Times' 1619 Project that put a lot of that history out there in a very accessible way. And so I think there's this multiplicity of new voices and new ways of looking at things has riled up the right wing and got them active all over again. But there were plenty of censorship efforts in this period I wrote about in American Midnight as well, and I detail a lot of them. Adam, you are on a book tour for this book, and you're probably getting asked the same questions over and over again. I'm wondering if there is a question that you're never asked that you wish you were asked, and if so, answer it now. (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful question. I think it's about the writing process. Why do I enjoy writing history? And I would say I write it because I love imagining myself living at a different time and place, imagining the choices that would face me, imagining the decisions I would have to make. And of course, I imagine myself making only the most heroic choices, which might not have been true at all had I really been alive then. But I love imagining myself in a different time and place. Well, maybe that's why your books are so readable, because we can also insert ourselves in your narratives. Do you have anything in the works now? Not yet. Finding a subject for a book is always a hard thing for me because if you're going to spend six or eight hours a day for three or four years writing a book, you better really be obsessed and fascinated by the subject. And the problem is that 95% of the subjects that obsess and fascinate me do so because somebody wrote a very good book about it. (laughs) Right. So finding the subject is hard. And I've been exploring some things. Sometimes I explore them by writing articles and book reviews to sort of get to know a subject better. And actually, I warmed up for this book by writing a number of pieces of it first appeared as magazine pieces before I finally convinced myself I had a book's worth of material. Adam Hochschild, thank you so much for joining us again on Forthright Radio. Well, thank you, Joy. It's really been a pleasure. You were wonderfully prepared in the questions you asked, really. I mean, I've I've talked to a number of people in the last couple of weeks, and no one was as well-prepared and elegant in their questions, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. That means a great deal to me, very much so. If I can impose on you just one more thing, Mm -hmm. I wish we'd gotten to what you had written about inflation, because it'd be very good for our listeners to hear. It seems to be having an impact on our ability to fundraise 
to keep the station on hmm. the air. Well, I find community radio to be a lifeline. When I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio, I hear voices, and you can tell right away, is this a voice from somebody at a community radio station, or is it a voice that's trying to sell me something? And I want the voices that are not trying to sell me something, that are trying to get at the truth, that are willing to listen to a variety of opinions, and that, you know, respect democracy. You have just heard an interview with Adam Hochschild. His latest book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, published by Mariner Books. Programs like Forthright Radio are dedicated to bringing you the greatest level of historic accuracy that are all too rare on the air and necessary to help us resist historic inaccuracy. KZYX houses diverse points of view from program hosts who do their absolute best to bring you information that is fact-based and good-hearted. And yet, of the $100,000 goal in our pledge drive, we have raised but a bit over seventy. $1,000. Thanks to those of you who have contributed. But gentle listeners, that is simply not good enough. And here's what I don't understand. How is it that folks like Donald Trump, with documentation of his over 30,000 public lies, or Alex Jones, with his cruel, hate-filled lies denying the massacres of innocent school children, how can people like these raise hundreds of millions of dollars from regular folks, and yet KZYX has so much difficulty raising the lowly amount of $100,000 while bringing you information, entertainment, and services for which you keep tuning in. Is it that you think that what you can contribute is too small to make a difference? Well, that's simply not true. It just means that more of us have to pitch in whatever we can. Or maybe you think someone else will do it. Someone else did do it, but not enough of us. So you do need to do it too. We know that times are hard. And if you truly are someone who cannot afford an extra 5 or $10 a month to electronically transfer from your credit card or bank, account, then go in peace. But the truth is that far more of us don't even notice that small amount once we have made the effort to set the transfer on automatic, trusting that you will honor your responsibility in the two-way relationship that is community radio. Please honor that trust and do your part to financially enable KZYX to keep bringing you the programs you love. Please go to kzyx.org and click on the Support KZYX button at the top of the page. The opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.org media.